Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my goodness, that's a serious introduction. Um, thank you so much. Uh, it's very, very gracious, Will, and yeah, I think you're probably too kind there, but uh, thank you so, so much. It is a wonderful joy uh, to be with you. I've been so looking forward to sharing uh, with you, and you've been very patient and gracious with the invitation. We've tried to make that work, and uh, just how things are. So it's wonderful to be with you. So good to be here. And thank you so much for having me. I do bring greetings uh, from our church uh, at one church. So it's uh, one church in, we, we've got five different locations meeting today. So where I'm based in Gloucester, we'll do uh, triple services today. So it's fantastic what God's doing all over the world. The church is, is growing. Uh, I, I've noticed everywhere where the church is going, it's growing. It's amazing. So whatever flavor, whatever denomination, when we're engaging with our world, we are growing. And, and it's wonderful to be part of the fastest growing thing on planet Earth today. So you might look around and think, well, there's not, there's not many of us here. Or you might think, wow, there's a lot of us here. It really doesn't matter. You're part of an amazing uh, community that's meeting today worldwide. More Christians alive today in the world than have lived in the history of the world up to this moment. It's quite amazing. But a third of the world's population are actively following Jesus Christ. It's amazing. So we're part of something exciting, right? You sure? <laughs> we're part of something fantastic. And it is great to be in a local expression of that community. And I really believe in the local church. That's why I'm part of one. That's why I serve one. That's why we uh, invest into one. Because just like you here, uh, uh, down in Gloucester, we are committed to that process. And as Will said, uh, we are moving to Scunthorpe uh, a little bit, uh, sort of to support family. We're in that sandwich generation. Some of you will know what that means. Uh, you've got sort of aged parents who are just on that moment where they just need a wee bit more TLC and a wee bit more care. You know what I mean by that? So we want to try and help them, but, but they need a bit of care, and, and we want to try and help them with that. And then right at the other end of the spectrum, our oldest daughter's just had her first baby. So we've got a granddaughter at that end and parents who just need our support and help a little bit. And it's part of our commitment to the will of God. We, we believe that's important to us. So that's why we're making some personal moves. We're, we're going to be part of New Life Church Scunthorpe and Assemblies of God Church. And I'm not moving there for the football. That's definitely not the reason I'm moving. I've seen Scunthorpe play. And it's football, but not as we know it. Um, so, so I'm not moving there for that, but we're very excited about being part of that fantastic church. There's a great church there. And uh, that's going to be our local community, and we'll continue to serve the wider church in the way that we're doing now. So thank you so much for uh, having us, and it is a real uh, joy to be with you. I'm married to Dawn. Dawn and I have been married 31 years. Uh, we met at Bible college. Come on. Uh, went there for an education, left with a wife. Always a bonus, I think. Um, we sometimes called it Mattersea Bridal College, and why not? Why not? It's a great place to meet a life partner. So uh, we've been married 31 years with three children together. Elena, our oldest, is a children's pastor in Scunthorpe. She's on staff there with her husband, Dan. He's the associate pastor. And of course, lovely Abigail Willow, our new, new addition. Uh, she's there. And then my son, Simeon, he's 22, works in Gloucester. In fact, when we move next week, he's staying behind. He wants to stay in Gloucester. He loves it there. So he's got a good job there. So he's going to be uh, leaving home or are we leaving him? Uh, I don't know. There we are. It's one of the two. And then our youngest, Beth Ann, she's 18. And she's currently on a church internship program uh, at a church uh, just outside Stoke. You talk to her. And she's been spending the year traveling all over the world. She, she loves traveling. So she's been to India and Kenya so far. She's about to go to Kenya and South Africa again and in Zambia and hopefully Pakistan later on in the year. So uh, 18 going for it. So she, she's loving that. And then, of course, I must mention the sausage dogs. So we have two beautiful sausage dogs. They get upset if I don't mention them. So we have uh, Pepperoni, our boy sausage dog. He sends his love. And Salami, our girl sausage dog. And they really are their names. They, they, that's their names. And they're beautiful. So, so I'm a big sausage dog fan. Never thought I would ever say that. But there we are. I am. And that's sort of us. That's our world. We love Jesus. Like you've been celebrating this morning. Jesus has transformed our lives. 
So we love Jesus. We make no apology about putting Jesus at the center of our world. And I make never any apology about talking about Jesus. He is amazing and he can change your life. But also we love the church with all its wondrous difficulties, ups and downs, good, bad, and ugly moments. We love the church uh, because the church is his body. And so we're committed to both. We're committed to serving him and serving his church. And it's my joy, maybe for a few moments, to serve you through the word of God. So if you would like to follow a reading that I'm about to take from the Bible, uh, then it would be great to do that. If you're a visitor and you don't have a Bible, do not worry about it. You can just listen to me. Or if someone's brought you and they've got one, you can maybe... uh, squint over to them and have a wee look at that. Uh, But if you do have a Bible with you, I'd love you to follow a reading with uh, with me. And I'm going to read from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. So Gospel of John, chapter 1. Before we start reading together, let me just set a wee bit of a context. So John's Gospel, and some of you may know this, some of you, maybe you're, you're relatively new to the faith, so, so John's gospel is, is one of four amazing stories about Jesus in the New Testament part of the Bible. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all of them tell their own eyewitness account of Jesus. What makes John a wee bit different is that the other gospels sort of tell the story of Jesus. They sort of, roughly, uh, start at the beginning and work towards the end. John does something really different. He's not really bothered about telling the story from the beginning to the end. He's wanted to get some big ideas to us in the life of Jesus. And his biggest of big ideas, if you read the Gospel of John, is that Jesus is the Son of God. In fact, if you get to the end of John's Gospel, I don't know why he doesn't put this at the start, but at the end he says, we write this to you so that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's the purpose of his writing, and that sort of explains why he starts the way he starts. So he sort of starts like a 100% full-on, high-octane beginning of his gospel. So he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He starts with a big idea behind that. And when we start reading now, you might hear me talk about the word. Uh, The word is the Son of God. So that might be language you're familiar with. Or maybe not, but it'll make sense as the reading goes on. But actually, uh, it it helps to say that as we look at this passage. Is that okay? So John chapter 1, verse 1, and it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born uh, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or even a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Wow. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Wow. Okay. Pretty pretty full-on stuff as you enter into that. And as we 
jump into John's gospel. John's trying to take us on a journey. And right at the beginning, he introduces two big ideas that sort of collide with each other. He does this deliberately. The first big idea he introduces to us is that the Jesus we're about to meet in his story in the gospel is is remarkably 100% God and at the same time 100% human. And John wants us to get that. He wants us to understand that the Jesus we're about to meet is not just a good man. He's not just a clever man. He's not just a gifted man. He's not just a talented teacher and a talented rabbi, but he is the Son of God in flesh. He's not 50% God and 50% man. He's 100% God and 100% man. Now, don't worry about it if that frazzles your brain cells. If that makes your head hurt, it sort of should, right? Because that's an idea that nothing in my brain can compute. There's, I mean, there's no page on Google that can help me with that idea. Nothing can help me understand how you could be 100% God and 100% human at the same time. I don't get that. I, my, my brain can't compute it. But what's happened in my journey is that by faith, I just believe that. I hold those ideas, even though if you ask me to fully explain what all of that looks like, I would probably struggle. And for 2,000 years, scholars have struggled to grapple with this idea. I still celebrate. In fact, we've just had Christmas together, and Christmas is the celebration of this amazing moment. We call it the incarnation, where God becomes flesh. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And actually, as the story goes on, it becomes clear that He has to be 100% God and He has to be 100% man to save the world. So it's an amazing idea that we might struggle with. But John, right at the beginning, says, in the beginning was the Word. Speaking of the Son of God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, that Word became human that word became flesh. And that's an amazing idea. But coupled with that, and this is where we're going this morning, but it was important to say that first bit first. Coupled with that, John repeats the idea. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 14 and in verse 17. He repeats the idea of grace and truth. don't know if you noticed that or you heard that as I was reading it to you. But he says in verse 14 that the word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And then he says this, he that's, that's the Son of God, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, so John's showing us that even Jesus coming to the world is an act of grace and truth. Now, in what way is that an act of grace and truth? Well, verse 14 sort of tells us. It says, the Word became flesh. That's grace. Right? God steps out of heaven generously. Somebody said earlier on, volunteered himself as we celebrate a communion. Remember that? He volunteered himself. He stepped out of heaven. He stepped away from his throne and he stepped into humanity and into the world. That, that action of God the Son becoming flesh is an act of grace. Amen? That's an act of generosity. So, so when we look at that statement, the word became flesh, that's grace. That's God's grace and generosity being shown to the world. But then it says this, uh, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. Now, that's truth. So, so John's telling us that God the Son stepped into humanity in an act of grace and generosity to the world, but he's also trying to tell us that this person we're now looking at is actually the one and only. He is God himself. And if we're really going to get Jesus, we've got to get both ideas. We've got to not only just accept his generosity and say, oh, thank you, that's nice. But we've got to accept the truth of who he is. Just understanding that he's been generous won't change our world, won't change my life. It is the acceptance of the truth that he is the son of God. That's the bit that changes me. Are you with me? And so, so the, 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 the action of he came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's what we've been celebrating today in this beautiful little simple feast. A bit of bread and a cup which represents 
the physical embodiment of God's love to you. So, so not, not just on the cross, but in the incarnation. Jesus comes in an act of grace, and he brings the truth of God to the world so that we can be here today, so that we can have our lives changed. Amen? But the second thing John's trying to really show us is that not only does, does God the Son come from the Father, full of grace and truth, but then it says this. He goes on to say this in verse 17. The law came from Moses, but he goes on to say this, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, here's what John's trying to say to us, and, and that's right at the end of that little introduction. He's saying this, everything you're about to see, Jesus do, is grace and truth. Every action you're about to see him perform is grace and truth. Every conversation is grace and truth. Everything he's about to engage in is grace and truth. So John is sort of setting us up. He's sort of given us a, a gateway into this gospel. He's saying to us, first of all, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human, and that that alone is an act of grace and truth. The Word became flesh, and we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. But it doesn't stop there. He says this, everything now I'm about to show you in my gospel is grace and truth. Everything that Jesus does is motivated by grace and truth. And I, I believe that in our 21st century world, our world desperately needs Christian communities that understand grace and truth that understand the power of it in their own lives, but understand how to share grace and truth with our world. Because here's my understanding of that. If Jesus came through grace and truth, and if Jesus does everything by grace and truth, then as a follower of Jesus, I need to embrace grace and truth. Amen? Does that make sense to you? So as a Christian community, whatever else we're known for, whatever we're famous for, whatever flavor we have in the way we do church together, something we must be famous for is grace and truth, is the bringing of his grace and his truth to our world. Does that make sense? And, and actually, that, that's at the very heart of our challenge and of our journey. And I think the 21st century church faces that challenge like never before. We've got to hold these two ideas together if we're going to impact the world. And I suppose it's worthwhile, just before we get to some examples and maybe some practical help for me and you, before we do that, it's probably worthwhile defining what grace and truth is. So grace in this context, what, what does it mean? Well, well, most of us will know or, or, or maybe have engaged with this word before, but it's this idea of God's favor that's given completely freely. Okay? So when you give something, if there are strings attached to it, it's not grace. So think of grace this way generosity without strings attached. Wow, what a thought that is. Uh, and of course, by very definition, it means it's sort of open to abuse. Grace is very vulnerable. Grace can be abused because its very definition means you're giving something freely. You're giving something without any strings attached. You're giving something, sometimes even to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And you're giving it without any conditions involved. Yes? Now, we've been celebrating this wonderful feast together this morning. And, and you know, there's a challenge to us because if you're anything like me, I, I love inviting people to my dinner table who are like me. Yes? So I invite people to my dinner table who I know they'll probably invite me back to theirs. And so even though it looks like an act of generosity, I know that, that probably if I invite you, you're going to invite me and we have a lovely time around the table. What, what grace would challenge me with, right? If I was bringing grace into that equation, grace would say, invite people to your dinner table who don't deserve it. Wasn't so many amens that I want to get that. I understand that. You're all thinking, what? 
Okay, I'm not saying you have to do that. I'm just using this as an example. Inviting people to your dinner table who don't deserve it. Inviting people to your dinner table who you don't even like. That would be awkward, right, wouldn't it? Choking on your fried chicken as you're, as you're sitting with someone you don't even like. And here's, here's the other thing about grace. Inviting people to your dinner table who can't invite you back. That's grace. All right, so if you want to try and think about grace... Not just a big sort of Bible idea, but bring that right down to the everyday. It's the acts of generosity to people who don't deserve it, people you may not even like, and people who can't pay you back. Anyone want to sign up for that? Okay. And that's grace, you see. That's grace. I, I remember going to, I, I was on mission and, and I don't want to say where the country was, but it was a Spanish-speaking country. And I, and, and I, was, I was out on mission, and uh, we visited an orphanage as part of what we were doing. And I looked at a slogan on the wall, and I was sort of working out. I can't speak Spanish or anything, but I was sort of working out the words. And, and I was sort of, you know, you know, when you're sort of 80%, you think, I think I know what that's saying, but I'm not sure. And I said to the lady, one of the ladies who was serving, I said, what does that say on the wall? And she said, it reads like this, God loves good children. Now, that sounds right, but that is heresy, right? Come on. It sounds right. If that was on a fridge magnet on your fridge, you'd be cool with that. Yeah, God loves good children. Yeah, I get that. But that's wrong. It's powerfully wrong. It's destructively wrong. It's disastrously wrong. Because what it should read is God loves children. All children. Good children. Bad children. Ugly children. Well-behaved children. Nasty children. My children. <laughs> you know, I love my kids. I would die for my kids. But every now and again, I could have killed them, you know. But, but you know what I mean? It's... Are you with me? Now, something deep down inside of us likes the idea of God loving good children. Now, if you're honest, now, if that's offending you, don't, don't, please don't be offended. So let me just speak for myself. Something deep inside me wants to sort of latch on to that because there's something inside me that wants to earn God's grace. There's something inside me that wants to say to God, I'm good enough. Does that make sense to you? Now, if that doesn't apply to you, that's cool. But I've met a lot of people like that. And that's why they're sort of attracted and they have a love-hate relationship with the idea that God loves good children. God loves, and, 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 but actually, that's wrong. It, it closes the door to His grace. God doesn't love good children. God loves all children, even when they're absolutely painful and nasty and wicked. Are you with me? Now, that's a difficult idea. That's why grace messes with us. That's why grace is hard. That's why grace in our everyday life for that person you're working with, you would rather not be working with. Or that next door neighbor who is from hell living next to you. That's why this is difficult because it's pushing us all the time to be like God, to be generous without strings. And that's really hard. Is that fair to say? Even for people like us, that's really hard. Because we've all got little prisons and prejudices in our brain. Don't we? No, you do. You do. Honestly, you do. We all do. We see the world not as it is. We see the world as we are. And that's the challenge for us. So, so when we look at grace, we're look, so, so John is saying, now you're about to go into the story, spot grace. Spot Jesus just giving stuff away. Now, next time you read the stories of Jesus, you just see him giving stuff away. You'll see him healing people who never even say thank you. You'll see him feeding the hungry, and they never join his club. You'll see people receiving his generosity, and they don't become his followers. Look at all the miracles that Jesus does. Look at all the lives that Jesus touches. Look at all the stuff that, and yet at the end of it all, he's got 120 people in an upper room that say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. Where are all the thousands of people that got all that grace? Well, I'll tell you where they are. They're back home. 
They're doing their jobs. They've forgotten about Jesus already. They've just taken his generosity and gone. Because that's what happens. But grace is still worth giving. Amen. Are you with me? So, so how would we define truth here? Now, this is the hard one. This is probably, if grace really pushes our buttons inside, then truth's going to, this is where it gets a bit difficult for the world we're dealing with. Because how do you define truth? My goodness, in the 21st century world we live in, there's such a debate about what truth is. What is truth? Can anyone really talk about truth in the absolute sense? And, and there's a lot of pushback on that. How would we define truth here? Well, let, let, let me give you a definition that might help you. Truth here is reality as God defines it. I think my phone is buzzing. Um, sorry, forgive me. Reality as God defines it. So truth here is not what I think. Truth here is not what you think, because we can have a disagreement on that. Truth here is what God thinks. So when John says Jesus came full of grace and truth, when John says we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, that's not up for debate. He's not saying, well, you know, what's your opinion on Jesus? He's saying this is the truth. This is who Jesus is. He's the word. He always was. He always is. And he always will be. He's the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And the one we saw walking amongst us, feeding the hungry and touching the sick, he was the one and only. John's not debating that issue. He's presenting it to us. This is the truth. So truth as God defines it, it's is that reality. It's not my opinion, your opinion. Do I like this? Do I not like this? Is this cool? Is this not cool? That, actually, none of that is relevant. What's relevant is... What does God actually want? Who is God? What, what's he say about this? And that's one of the great challenges of putting truth and grace together and grace and truth together. Because you've, you've probably spotted it already. Grace, by very definition, opens up your, uh, the arms and says, everybody's welcome. Amen? So grace says, everybody's welcome. But truth challenges people in their followership of Jesus. So, so, so let's define it this way. Grace includes everybody. Everybody's welcome. But truth, by very definition, will exclude people. So there are some people that loved Jesus' grace, but weren't so cool with the truth. Come on, are you there? They loved what he was giving. They didn't like what he was asking. Come on, are you there? And, and if you read the Gospels honestly, you'll find that over and over again. And it's really wonderful. And it helps me in the 21st century. When Jesus is feeding the hungry in John 6, it says, you know, everyone got fed, everyone got satisfied, and all their bellies are full and they're lying there on the grass thinking, wow, this, this is the sort of king we want. Free lunches and food galore. And then he says, as their bellies are full, oh, and by the way, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then went, the exits are here, 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 and here. Elvis has left the building, ladies and gentlemen, and most of the crowd left with him. And actually, as the crowd are starting to leave, they're not leaving because the food wasn't good. They're leaving because the truth was too difficult, right? And as they're leaving, Jesus even turns to his own little group and he says to Peter, one of the key members of that little group, he says, do you want to go as well? They're the exits, do you want to go? And here's what Peter said, really amazing. Peter says, where could we go? You have the words of eternal life. Note that, Peter didn't say, oh, I'm staying for the lunch. Peter's saying, I'm staying for the truth. You with me? And you'll see this. Jesus has to manage this tension over and over again. He's generous. Ten lepers are sick. He heals all ten of them. Only one comes back and says, thank you. And Jesus actually says to the guy who comes back, where's the rest of them? Were you the only one healed? 
And it's fascinating that although all ten were cleansed, only the man who returned was made whole. It's a beautiful play on the words there by Dr. Luke. So, but, but, the, but the nine who didn't come back didn't get unhealed. Come on. Jesus didn't say, right, those nine that didn't come back, you're not healed. The leprosy's come back. and serves you right for being miserable. The nine who didn't come back still received grace. What they didn't get was truth. So they got cleansed, but it was the one who returned that was made whole by the truth. Are you with me? Now that's that same tension that Jesus is having to work with is what we have to work with all the time, isn't it? With the people we live with, rubbing shoulders with, work with, on our street, even in this community. We're dealing with a heart that is being called to be generous, no strings attached, that's bless people, that's bless our world, that's show the kingdom of God, but at the same time, the challenge to living truthfully. And it's that challenge of grace and truth that if we will have the courage, now this is, please forgive me now, don't, don't be offended by this, but this is growed up Christianity. All right, this is me and you moving beyond a bit of an experience on a Sunday morning and starting to dig into what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. And what it really means to be a follower of Jesus is grappling with this idea, I'm called to be generous but I'm also called to understand and present the truth. And that's going to create a natural tension in my life. That's going to create some difficulties. But if we will have the courage to grab those difficulties, work with them, manage them, maneuver them, I think we can build something together that truly does reflect the grace and truth of Jesus that we've been called to. Does that make sense? So, so just a couple of wee practical things to help you. Because as a Christian community, if it's all grace, we're vulnerable. All right, if it's just grace, then anything goes. All right, and that's not good. I mean, even, even if you're not a Christian here, you know that not anything, that anything goes is not a good idea. Because when you're driving home today, if people decide on the road, anything goes. You may not get, a t you may not get to lunch. Are you with me? All right, so even non-Christians know the mentality that says anything goes is not a good one. So grace alone can almost say to people, ah, it's fine, do what you want, everything's fine. But, but the Bible won't let that happen. The Bible not only opens up a door of grace, but then it challenges with the truth that says, now if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to move beyond the packed lunch and go into understanding the kingdom of God, then you've got to grab truth. You've got to make the journey of accepting God's version of reality. Are you with me? Okay, so a couple of practical ideas that might help you. When, when we hold grace and truth together, I think a number of amazing things can happen. I think, and we can see this in Jesus, I think we can learn to defend our convictions without losing our compassion. Okay? We can defend our convictions without losing our compassion. There's a cool story, John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets a man called Nicodemus. Now, you may not know who that is, but he was like a top Bible scholar, very, 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 very clever when it came to the Bible. And he met Jesus at night, and the fact that Jesus receives him at night is an act of grace. And the two men have a truth conversation. But I want you to notice that in the truth conversation they have, Jesus constantly treats this man with dignity and respect. And in fact, the fact that he allows him to have the conversation under the cover of darkness, he's sort of protecting Nicodemus from potential persecution within his religious community. So even though they're having a tough conversation, it is cloaked in truth. Now, here's what's really interesting. At the end of chapter 3, there's no indication that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus. In fact, he just disappears. But then we meet Nicodemus again in John chapter 7, and he's defending Jesus in front of this religious community, which is a really courageous thing to do. And then we meet Nicodemus again in chapter 18 of John, 
when he literally, with a man called Joseph, identifies with the crucified Jesus and takes the body of Jesus for burial. Now, John, what are you saying? What I'm saying is, is that in John chapter 3, Nicodemus doesn't get the truth yet. He's struggling with it. In fact, he has big questions, and he says to Jesus, that's making my head hurt, right? Can a man go into his mother's womb a second time? It freaks him out. He can't work it out. But Jesus doesn't condemn the man for that. Jesus lets him make a journey, and later on, it's clear Nicodemus gets the truth. Now, I want to suggest to you, it's my suggestion, feel free to reject it. I want to suggest to you that Nicodemus continued on the journey of truth because of the grace-filled way Jesus dealt with him. That actually Jesus' graciousness in receiving him under the cover of darkness, Jesus' graciousness in letting him have the room and the space to allow the truth to work in his life. All of that graciousness, I believe, allowed the truth to have its impact on Nicodemus. Here's what I've discovered. Now, now, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but truth sounds different when it's preceded by grace. That makes sense? I, I, I love porridge. Anyone with me? Okay, just a few. There's more than, more than normal, but yeah, a few of us. Uh, now, I know that porridge is good for me. The doctors have told me it lowers my cholesterol. It's, it's a healthy option, filled with fiber. Let's not go there. Uh, but it's all that sort of stuff, and it's better than a fried breakfast option. Although everything within me wants a fried breakfast option. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? My head and my heart fight every day on that. But, but, but I know it's good for me. Now, here's the thing about porridge. I know it's good for me, but on its own. Who's with me? Do you know? On its own, it's not the greatest taste in the world. Bland. It's really, in fact, it's almost tasteless. It's really, yeah. If you've never tried porridge, come on, this week, that's your homework. Everyone who's never had a bowl of porridge, have a go, and you'll know what I mean. It's a, it'll, it'll, you'll remember this. Try it without anything added and see if you like it. Now, now I could probably get used to porridge on its own, but, but here's what I've discovered. If I threw in a few blueberries, come on now, super fruit. If I threw in a few blueberries, if I threw in a couple of raspberries, a few seeds and nuts, don't know why, but my wife said that's good for me. So a few seeds and nuts. And the magic ingredient, a, come on, come on, say it again. Honey, all right, not sugar, not white sugar. No, white sugar, bad. Okay, so spoonful of honey drizzling over the porridge. <laughs> honey transforms porridge into porridge. Okay, so it goes from something that's good for me to something I want. And what made the difference? Bit of honey. Bit of honey. Come on, are you with me? Bit of honey. Now, now listen, the truth is the truth. Whether people like the taste of it or not, the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. God's reality as he defines it is his reality. And we can't argue with that. So it's porridge. But I've sort of discovered trying to stuff porridge down people's throats. They tend to spit it out and spit it right back at me. That's not a pleasant experience. But a bit of honey, maybe a few blueberries, maybe a raspberry or two, even a banana thrown in there can make a difference. All, all, all I've done is I've made the porridge more accessible and attractive. I, that's our challenge, right? If we just go at people with truth, they'll spit it back at us. Because if you have a go at me, even if I know you're right, I'll push back at you because I'm Irish and I like a fight. So I'll push back at you with that. I'll, I'll just, I'll stand my ground. Even though deep down I know you're right, I don't like being attacked. I don't like being told I'm wrong. And, and sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves and our first conversation with a broken person is we're trying to force porridge down their throat instead of introducing them to honey. 
Are you with me? Now, now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about compromising the truth. We're not changing the porridge. The porridge is still the porridge. But we're just thinking about how we present that porridge. Come on. And there are people all around us desperate for your porridge. But the thought of eating porridge, the thought of coming here on a Sunday morning, what? Are you insane? Why would I go to church on a Sunday morning and be preached at and singing songs and being told I'm rubbish? Why, why, why would I do that? I'd be bored for an hour and a half. So the thought of porridge. Ugh. But maybe you and I presenting that porridge to them in a way that they could engage with just might open them up. I think that's what happens with Nicodemus. I think he struggles with the porridge. but he's attracted by the grace. The grace held him long enough for the truth to do its work. Come on now. And grace doesn't compromise truth ever, but it does prepare the way for truth. Does that make sense? So, so maybe in our world, maybe some of you, maybe that's a word from God. Stop trying to shovel porridge down your neighbor's throat. Okay? Because even if they know it's good for them, they're going to spit it out at you. But, but maybe we say to the Holy Spirit, is there, some, is there some honey I can introduce to this equation that can maybe help me reach my world? Does that make sense to you? Here's a second idea really quickly. We, we can offer acceptance to our world. When we have grace and truth, we can offer them acceptance without granting approval. It's a hard one. It's really hard. And Jesus got criticized for this. If you read the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus gets criticized for sitting with sinners. In fact, he sat with sinners so much and went to their dinner parties so often that he was labeled a drunk and a glutton. Now, there's not a single record in the Gospels of Jesus overeating or getting drunk. Not one. But optics. Optics are very powerful, aren't they? how you see things. And so the religious community saw him hanging around with the riffraff, hanging around with the broken, and assumed wrongly that he was approving of them. But he wasn't. He wasn't approving of their lifestyle, but he was accepting them as people. Very dangerous tension. That actually we accept people, that's grace, but we've got to then also have the courage to have the truth conversation. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a very interesting woman. In fact, he sits waiting for her. And she turns up, and the Bible tells us later on in the story, she had been married five times, and the bloke she was with, she wasn't married to. So a bit of a colorful history, shall we say. Interesting woman. She comes to the well that day on her own at midday, which means... She's no friends. She has been socially isolated. And I want you to notice what Jesus does. Amazing thing. I mean, years and years of theological training come to bear right now. The woman approaches him, and here's what Jesus does. He says to her, can I have a drink? Wow. Now, note what he's doing. Jesus is making himself vulnerable to her. A woman that nobody's talking to, a woman that nobody's walking with, and a woman that no one's drawn their water out of the well with because she's stinking sinner. Jesus says, can I have a cup of water from, from you? Now, let me say this. Please don't mishear me. Do not hear what I am not saying, but I'm going to say this. I think eventually she drank out of Jesus' cup because he was prepared to drink out of her. Look, see that day, that woman knew she was broken. She knew her life was rubbish. She, she already knew that. What she didn't need was someone to tell her what she already knew. She didn't need Jesus to say, do you know, your life's rubbish. How did, how did this happen? How did you end up like with five husbands and living with a bloke? What's wrong with you? Right? Now, now as a rabbi, as an expert, as a Bible theologian, as the son of God, he could have said all of that stuff to her. But what does he say to her? I'm really thirsty. Any chance? Any chance I could share a drink with you? 
And that simple action of being prepared to drink from her world opened up our heart to drink from his. Come on now. Look, can I just say this? Most people around us, now they may not talk like we talk, like sin and stuff like that, but most people around us know they're sort of broken. All right? But most do. Now, you'll meet the occasional person, doesn't get any of that. But most people I've met know that deep down life's not what it should be. It's sort of a desperate attempt to find happiness, which doesn't always seem to work. And most people know they're broken. Most people don't need to be told they're broken. They need to be shown how to be fixed. Amen? And Jesus drinks from her cup and she drinks from his. Wow. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not encouraging you to go off and do sinful stuff, right? Don't hear that. And if you hear that, you've not heard me right. I'm not saying go out and get blasted so that people will come to church. I'm not saying any of that. I'm, I'm not talking about participating in sin. I'm talking about engaging with someone's world, stepping into their world. For that woman, stepping into her world was, can I have a drink? For your next door neighbor, it might look like something else. For the guy who's a pain in the bum at work, it could look like something else. But we're stepping into their world. We had a lady who became a Christian in our church in a previous ministry context I was in. We, as a church, we signed up to allow people to do their community service in our church. It was really interesting. So people who had committed crimes, and this woman had committed a serious crime, but it was deemed she shouldn't go to jail. And I agree with her. She shouldn't have gone to jail. That would have been disastrous for this woman. But she had to serve lots of community hours. I don't want to tell you how many, but it was a lot. And she had to serve some community hours. And so she she came to our church to serve her community service. My wife was the center manager then and looked after, took care of her, sorted it all out, got her working in the, in the kitchen, got her helping with the cleaning program. And then we had a, a ministry to old and vulnerable uh, people. And so we got her involved in that, just caring for people and looking after them, all under supervision, all carefully, et cetera, et cetera. And, and uh, about... Six months into that experiment, that woman became a Christian, okay? Came to church on a Sunday. You know, we didn't, there was no pressure. She didn't have to come to church on a Sunday as part of her community service. She just had to come midweek, but she ended up coming to our church, ended up becoming a Christian. And I sat with her and I said to her, what was it that flipped you over? Like, what was it that made you come on a Sunday? Here's what she said. This is the first place where I have been genuinely accepted for who I am. No one judged me. They accepted me. Now, I didn't have the heart to tell her, well, actually, there are some people in our community, had they known what you did, they would have judged you. Um, we just didn't tell them. We kept that quiet. And that's the truth. I mean, we just kept her away from certain people. Do you know what I mean? Are you with me? There's probably nobody like that in your church, but in our church, there was a few people, and you're thinking, they would be picking up stones and throwing them at this woman. So, so we kept them away from her. But everybody she met just accepted her. And the acceptance made way for truth. Not once did we approve of her lifestyle. Not once did we say what she had done was right or, or that she shouldn't have been punished. In fact, she said to us, I deserve this. In fact, she said, I deserve to go to jail. I'm just grateful I didn't. She knew she was broken. She didn't need a snotty pastor to tell her she was broken. She needed somebody to show her the way to healing. Come on, are you with me? Are you with me? And Jesus has this amazing ability to drink out of her world that allows her to drink out of his. I love that. That's grace and truth. It's not just grace. Oh, let's hang around together and do naughty things. No, no, no. It's truth. And he does challenge her with truth. And ultimately, she becomes a follower, not because of the water situation. She becomes a follower because she accepts the truth. And the truth sets her free. Does that make sense? Here's the last idea. Can I have a couple more minutes and I'm finished? Is that okay? Thank you. But you're so gracious. Okay, here's the last one. And we are done. Promise. This is it. If we can hold grace and truth together, I believe we can be distinct in society without being distant from it. 
right? So when I was a wee boy growing up in church, I was taught that to be distinct was to be distant. Are you with me? So if you want to be like a proper, holy Christian, don't hang around with sinner type people. Now that sounds brilliant to some people on a Sunday morning. The problem I had was everything I did involved hanging around with sinners. Like school, for example. I can't not go to school. Had to go to school. Every single person. I mean, I was the only Christian in my class in secondary school. School of 1,200 boys in North Belfast. Can you imagine what that was like? And I was the only Christian. In, in fact, my nickname was Jez, short for Jesuit priest. I, didn't even, I mean, I was hoping it was short for Jesus. It was short for Jesuit priest. And he gave me a good nickname. So, so I, I was the only Christian in my class. When I, and I was very heavily into sports. I was in a football club, a running club, and a judo club. I was the only Christian in all of those clubs. So here was my problem. If I've, to be holy and to be special and be, be amazing, if, I, if, I've, if I've got to separate myself from all those people, I am in trouble. Where do I go? You see, that the distance that the Bible wants us to have is not the distance of physicality, but the distance of mentality. Worldliness is not just what you do. Worldliness is what you think. Worldliness is what's in my heart, what I believe. And Jesus has this amazing ability of rubbing shoulders with the riffraff. I love how the message puts it. You know, the, 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 the riffraff of life, the, the pig huggers. And he has this amazing ability to mix with people, highbrow theologians, women of moral questionability, and somehow he doesn't get, like, contaminated by any of them. In fact, if anything, they sort of get infected by him. Come on, I love that. I love that. Greater is he that's in you that's in the, than he that's in the world. Now, we've got to be careful. We've got to be wise. We've got to be sensible about how we do stuff. But here's what I've discovered, and I'm just going to share my wisdom that I've learned and I live by. I've discovered this, that our distinctiveness is even more outstanding, not just when we're apart from society, but when we're in it. I'm a Liverpool supporter. Red or dead, you'll never walk alone. Hashtag, we're going to win the league. Boom, come on, pastor. Come on now. Uh, we are going to do it. And if we beat Man United today, come on. It will be marvelous. You'll hear me screaming from Gloucester. Uh, it'll be marvelous if we do. I'm a Liverpool, but I don't go that often. But, but a couple of years ago, I went to watch them against Napoli. Now, Napoli's an Italian team, and they play in blue and white. Liverpool plays in all red. Now, forgive me. Don't glaze over. Stay with me. I'm almost there. Okay? And I was in the famous cop end of Anfield, which is where like all the hardcore supporters go. You know, they're all there. And, and there's 20,000 seats in the cop, and nobody sits on them. They pay a fortune for a seat. Nobody sits on them. Everybody stands up the whole game. It's quite amazing. It's like, like people go, do you know we've been standing in worship for like 10 minutes? <laughs> in Anfield, they're standing for nearly two hours. 19 minutes in a game, 15 minutes halftime, and they're generally all standing around chatting before the game begins. Uh, and they're not, they're not thinking about, oh, standing here. They're, they're just absorbed by their God. He just happens to wear a red shirt. Actually, I think Jesus is a Liverpool supporter. Um, <laughs> hope so. Anyway, I went to see them. We were playing Napoli. Napoli had the audacity to score first on the 27th minute. And the Napoli supporters were at the opposite end of the ground. So try to imagine I'm behind the goal, the cop, the hardcore. At the end of that end, the Anfield Road end, behind that goal, is all the Napoli supporters, 6,000 of them. And it's a sea of blue and white. And when Napoli score, they go bananas. I mean, Italians, just wow. Passion, noise was incredible. But what was even more incredible, some of the Napoli supporters didn't manage to get tickets in the Napoli end. Outside the ground, they'd bought a few tickets from naughty Liverpool supporters who had sold them their ticket. And while the sea of blue and white was jumping up and down, there were little specks of blue and white in the red. Now, there was no blue and white in the cop. 
Not even an Italian would be mad enough to do that. There was no blue or white in the cup, only red in the cup. But all around the ground, there were little, and here's what they were doing with, with the other Italian supporters. They were jumping up and down with their blue and white scarves. And I'm thinking, we're about to see an Italian supporter die live in Anfield. Body parts are going to be thrown onto the pitch. But what was amazing was I, I wasn't just impacted by the 6,000 behind the goal. I was more impacted by the blue and white in the red. The blue and white stood out in the red. Now, they looked amazing all together, but they looked incredibly impressive in the red. Are you with me? Now, listen, if we all hang together, we are a pretty impressive bunch. We can make a lot of noise and we can have a lot of fun and we can enjoy Jesus. But when we have the courage to get into the red, we have the courage to get into a broken world, when we have the courage to get into a world that is dying and wave our scarves, kind of say, up and down, we stand out even more. There are people that we know, they'll never come here on a Sunday morning. It's too much. But we can go to them. We can engage with them. We, we can learn to touch them where they are. And actually, if you and I can have the courage to, to hold our blue and white, as it were, in the red, it stands out even more. The light does its best work in the dark. Salt does its best work on the food. Not too much, though. We do our best work in the world. Now, we're not of it. We've been saved from it. It's not where we live anymore in terms of our heart allegiance, but it's where we live every day. And as we have a Christian community, if we can grab this message of Jesus, I'm here today, I'm here today. Literally, I, I, I honestly believe that if it wasn't for the grace and truth of Jesus, I would be dead, like literally dead. I don't just mean spiritually dead. I think I would be literally dead. I think there are people in this room, you know you would have been dead by now. Like you know that. So we're here because of grace, generosity, where Jesus just went, love you. I love you so much. Here. Have this. But in that generosity, we heard and felt and experienced truth. And we reached out beyond the free lunch and took a hold of the truth behind the lunch. And it's the truth that has really satisfied us ever since. Yes, amen. And, and we live in a world that needs that sort of heart. And, and, and we're the ones that are going to present it to our world. Now listen, I know this is tough. This is really challenging. I get it. But as I look around my world, I'm, I am convinced more than ever that the world needs a grace and truth community. Truth, a, a community that knows the truth, absolutely knows it, but understands that grace must precede truth in order for truth to be heard and experienced by a broken world. Jesus, John says, came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Could, could you and I come from this place today and go out into our world, whatever that world looks like, and it'll look different for all of us, but go full of grace and truth and say, Holy Spirit, help me to be a grace and truth person. Could we go into our world in the ordinary, the routine, the mundane, even the boring bits? And be people that don't just think truth, but think grace and truth. And maybe this week, maybe this month, maybe this year, the Holy Spirit will give us, I am convinced of it, profound opportunities to demonstrate His love to our world. Amen? Can I pray for you? Would that be okay? That's just for a moment, just, just where you're sitting. Just relax where you are and, and, and let me just pray for you. I, I'm conscious that there are people in this room and you have been a Christian like for forever. 
You've heard this sort of stuff before. You sort of know it. I'm conscious there may be very young followers of Jesus in this room and some of this message is new to you. I'm also conscious there may be people and you are not a follower of Jesus and you have endured my sermon for the last number of moments. But for each of us, there is a message of grace and truth. Grace on its own leaves us vulnerable. It creates an anything goes mentality. Truth on its own leaves us isolated. It leaves us in a world where we are convinced we are better than everything around us. Grace and truth together allows us to hold God's reality, but position it and present it with a generous heart, a generous mentality to a world that actually doesn't deserve it. And we didn't deserve it, but it was given to us. We took a piece of bread and we drank some juice this morning, symbols of grace and truth. And as I took that bread and led so wonderfully by this church in doing that, and as I drank that cup, I was reminded by the words of how blessed I am that God's generosity opened me up to his truth, and his truth has transformed my life. So I'm just going to pray. And here's, I'm going to pray a very simple thing. I'm going to pray that this will be a community of grace and truth. Now, this is not easy. This is hard stuff. This will create a bit of mess in our world. This will create tensions and difficulties. But if we will have the courage to follow Jesus into grace and truth, I believe that he can use us to bring grace and truth. And so, Lord Jesus, I speak your grace and your truth over this community. I pray that this church will be a community of grace. A community where generosity is offered without strings being attached. And Lord, deep down, the challenge of that pushes us, makes us uncomfortable. But Lord, I pray that there will be an embracing of the spirit of grace, unmerited favor, favor we did not deserve, favor without condition, favor without expectation of return. That Lord, that would govern our thoughts, govern our attitudes, govern even our behavior to people that are not like us, the people that if we're honest, we don't even like, people who wind us up, people who are even against us. But somehow, Lord, we will journey into the grace for others that we have received from you. But Lord, I also pray that there will be such a conviction of truth, a revelation of your truth in our hearts, a revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, a revelation of your magnificence, a revelation of your call, a revelation of what discipleship of Jesus really looks like. That, Lord, our journey will be a journey of truth, a journey where truth sets us free because we know it. And Lord, I pray for this community that we will be men and women who learn not only how to live that truth, but how to present that truth to a world that will, its first reaction will be to spit it out when they taste it. And Lord, I pray that you will give us wisdom. You will give us insight. You will give us strength to walk this grace and truth community. Lord, I pray that this year there will be men and women 
transformed because of the grace and truth of this community. That there will be broken people mended because of grace and truth. That there will be lost people found because of grace and truth. That, Lord, there will be unlovely people and unattractive people and people who've been pushed to the margins of our world who will be drawn into the kingdom of God because of the grace and truth of this community. Lord, this church literally sits in a building called Grace Academy. May they not only sit in grace, but may they carry grace. May they not only sit in truth, but may they proclaim truth in all its life-giving power in Jesus' name. So, Lord, I thank you for coming to us full of grace and truth. Thank you for giving us your grace and truth. And may we be men and women who carry your grace and truth to our world in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John.